From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we welcome back Professor Niels Ringa, director of the UW Center for European Studies. Professor Ringa teaches a number of comparative politics classes in the department, offering courses on the European Union and most recently, German politics. We are grateful to talk to Professor Ringa today for his insights on the global political and economic impact of COVID-19 and state responses to the virus. Germany, it seems, continues to be a relative model of success on a number of metrics in tackling COVID-19, including testing, tracing, and treatment. And we are excited to talk to Professor Ringa about his analysis of that. So thanks so much for being on the podcast, Professor Ringa. Oh, yeah, I'm very happy to be back here. So uh, maybe we can start broadly with your take on the political nature of the COVID-19 global pandemic. A lot of people are saying, and I know I feel this way as well, um, that it's the most extraordinary and disruptive political crisis they've lived through. Do you share that sentiment? Well, um, I'm really, it's a little early to say it's the most extraordinary and disruptive because I've actually lived through some big events. So I grew up in Germany. And so my childhood memories include things like the Chernobyl nuclear catastrophe, the fall of the Berlin Wall, German reunification, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Then I moved to the US in 1998. So I was here for 9-11. And so, you know, it's certainly up there in terms of the most extraordinary events that I've lived through. Um, Actually, the main way that I've been thinking about this is, uh, you know, how my seven-year-old son might remember this, right? It, it is probably on par for him with those big events of my childhood, right? So I imagine this will be one of his earliest uh, profound uh, memories. Right. And you also have people out there in the media saying, sort of attributing a lot of causes to the possible political crisis this could cause. So people saying this is why um, globalization doesn't work. You have populist calls for um, more protectionist measures following this. Also on the um, left, people like Naomi Klein attributing this to the failures of capitalism. If you had to sort of speculate 10 years from now how you and your fellow political scientists, um, comparativists, will look back at the United States and Germany, um, sort of how do you think you're going to spend your time talking about COVID-19 and the reactions out of each of those countries. Yeah, this, you know, this is the potential for this to be an event with really significant uh, consequences, politically, economic, and socially, um, is certainly there. I mean, I tend to think about this kind of on two levels as somebody whose research often lies at the intersection of comparative politics and international relations. So from the IR perspective, the question is whether or not the pandemic has the potential to reshape global politics. And that's probably something you want to talk to some of my colleagues and I are about at some point. My own sense is that um, the crisis is actually actively undermining America's standing in the world because it has proven to be so obviously unprepared and what's worse, unable Mm. to actually get its act together even now that the crisis is in full swing. And so the U.S. is not only failing to offer, you know, any kind of global leadership, 
the administration seems, you know, seen by the outside world as actually incapable of offering any such leadership, um, either internationally or domestically. So we're, you know, experiencing the greatest global crisis since the Second World War, and the U.S. is basically sidelining itself internationally, right? And it's kind of viewed with a mix of pity and schadenfreude. Uh, from the outside, I just saw actually, I think yesterday, a German newspaper quoting President Trump as saying that the world is looking to the U.S. because the U.S. is leading the world or something along those lines. And then the uh, writer basically immediately pointed out that the only examples of the U.S. leading the world these days is in terms of infections and deaths. I mean, that's really harsh, but those perceptions matter in international politics and they might have a lingering impact even after this administration leaves office. Um, now, from the comparative politics perspective, uh, the question is how the crisis affects domestic politics across the world. Um, and I think that we see a great deal of really interesting variation in responses and their success. And so, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Germany. Um, in part because it's seen as a you know success story uh, comparatively speaking, but I, I also do think that there's you know well-founded concerns about how the pandemic might strengthen politically and socially re regressive forces, um, and that we might be in for you know heightened xenophobia, greater societal schisms, and an increased acceptance of um, authoritarianism. You know, suffering unfortunately tends not to bring out the best in people. Um, so uncertainty and fear tend to make people look for scapegoats. Um, and, you know, we already kind of had uh, fertile ground for some of that scapegoating going on um, across the world. And in some countries, like in Hungary, we now have seen authoritarian leaders actually being able to translate the public health crisis into an opportunity um, to consolidate their power. A crisis like the pandemic raises very legitimate concerns about Things like centralization of power, limits on fundamental rights, uh, expanded state surveillance, electoral disruptions. And so even in established democracies uh, where democratic backsliding is not an immediate threat, there are fine lines to be considered and um, uh, carefully walked. I, I do want to say that there's also kind of a, another side to this, right? Um, and, you know, one of the things is um, that I've been thinking about is the uh, pandemic as a kind of shared experience across different parts of the world. I was talking uh, to a friend about how remarkable it is that our families, which are actually spread out across three continents, are all experiencing the same thing with, you know, slight and perhaps very consequential variations, but still the same thing. And so it kind of exposes a common vulnerability um, that doesn't have to be intrinsically divisive, but it depends a little bit on how we, you know, actually treat those that are more vulnerable in this crisis and the kinds of lessons that we uh, uh, draw from this, right? There's kind of opportunity here to realize that those that we tend to marginalize under normal circumstances, right, um, like many of the people that we now recognize and praise as providing essential services are people that also uh, are deserving of our support in uh, normal times. Um, and so in that sense, the current situation is also actually an opportunity um, to reshape perceptions and perhaps even political, economic and social realities. Um, you know, that's where I think, or at least hope, uh, we could make some progress, right? There's a potential for civic and political engagement in times of crisis, and where we're headed then is ultimately up to us, um, collectively speaking. So now we can kind of get into the question of why some countries are doing much better than others in some cases. Some observers might have assumed that the United States was positioned to respond to the crisis in a more efficient and effective manner than it has thus far. In reality, 
Germany has had much more comparative success to the U.S. and indeed most countries worldwide. Why is the German COVID-19 death count lower than in other places and in particular the United States? You know, the first thing that's actually worth mentioning here is that um, while Germany's response to the pandemic is admirable in very some very important ways, news coverage over here would actually give you the impression that it's been kind of smooth and efficient from the get-go. And that's actually not what happened and also not how it was initially perceived inside Germany. So I just kind of wanted to mention that, that it's not, you know, this kind of, oh, Germany has done everything right. In fact, the government's initial response was viewed by Germans as slow, confused, and incoherent. There was a kind of patchwork of responses across different states and even different cities. And there was no uniform response or uniform set of measures um, such that people were, you know, asking early on if Germany's federal, federal constitutional order was prepared for a national emergency such as the uh, coronavirus. Um, so there was really initially no clear political direction, um, but then eventually the government got its act together. Um, but um, and then again, before we get to your question, I actually just looked up some basic numbers because I thought that this might be interesting. You know, we have this general idea that Germany's, uh, you know, infection rates have been uh, relatively good compared to other countries, and that there has been uh, lower deaths. So I just looked up that um, as of last week, there were just under um, just under 158,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Germany, and uh, last week 6,115 deaths uh, total. Now those numbers are you know, look great from where we stand here, um, uh, especially considering that Germany is testing much more extensively than is the case in the U.S. And so there's less undercounting, uh, sorry, undercounting of uh, uh, cases. Um, but you wanted to talk about the factors, right, that contribute to this relatively low number. Um, and some of them are, in fact, a result of Germany's response to the crisis, but others are a little bit more arbitrary. So on the more arbitrary side of things, is that those infected, especially early on, many of them were actually younger than was the case in, in, in many other countries. Um, and of course, age is a major risk factor when it comes to fatality rates. Um, so many of the early cases in Germany were patients who had contracted the virus in ski resorts, especially um, in the now infamous hotspot of um, Ischgl in uh, Austria. Um, and so they were relatively younger and healthier. Um, and so that you know, is actually one factor that helps explain um, some of the deviation from um, patterns in other countries. Uh, but Germany has also been very effectively prepared, um, you know, for potentially dramatic increase, especially once uh, things kind of got going. Um, it expanded intensive care capacities uh, quite dramatically. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why the public health system in Germany did not become overwhelmed. Um, another is that social distancing measures um, successfully flattened the curve, which has to do in part with trust in government, science and experts. And finally, there's testing, which uh, Germany is doing extensively and systematically. And so there's a number of factors that we can consider in some detail, if you would like. So we can talk about any of those in a little bit more detail if you want. Yeah, all of those are extremely interesting aspects of Germany's response. Let's start with trust in government, because I feel like, especially here in the United States, we're seeing a lot of backlash to state governments in particular. What is the difference between the United States and Germany in their the citizens' trust in government? And especially, you know, because Angela Merkel is a scientist, um, are, are the German citizens more trusting of her? Mm -hmm. uh, can you speak to that at all? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, in general, there's, you know, a trust in government is higher in Germany than it is here. Um, and I do think that's a really important factor um, in this pandemic, um, most basically because it means people are more willing to accept restrictions and engage, for example, in the social distancing measures that are required for um, slowing the spread of the pandemic. Um, and so, um, you know, those measures were generally met with little opposition and uh, broadly followed. Um, um, you know, Germans also observed um, kind of rational decision making at the highest level of government uh, based on science and data, uh, which, of course, then also bolsters that kind of trust in government. Right. And the success of those decisions uh, when it came to flattening the curve, then, you know, further contributed to that. Um, Angela Merkel is a really interesting uh, case here. And, you know, uh, much has been made in the press uh, of her uh, being a trained scientist. Um, which I do think matters. Uh, I think that it's you know a little bit played up uh, for effect, but I do think that it matters. Um, and she's also known to widely consult uh, with experts, not only um, you know viral uh, virologists, but also in other fields like um, you know psychologists or or um, experts in ethics, for example. Um, and then she communicates her decisions clearly, calmly, and honestly, which Germans have been appreciating. Um, and she also is willing to admit when she doesn't know something, right? And that, of course, then boosts her credibility because when she, you know, admits when she doesn't know something, then people trust when she says that she does know something. Um, so the result is that uh, in early April, 63% of Germans uh, expressed approval of the government, which was up 28% from the previous month. So really a big jump. And uh, Merkel herself is at the top of the uh, popularity charts, um, her approval rating is in the mid 60s. Um, and that's not, you know, not just important for her own government, but also more broadly um, for the legitimacy of state authority in Germany, right? Especially in times when that authority is restrictive and potentially uh, coercive. Now, it's important to note that that doesn't mean that there is no political contestation over the country's response to the virus. And in fact, there has been growing conflict over time. Um, which is something we should talk about at some point in our conversation here. But in general, trust in government is a very important contributor to Germany's comparatively successful response to the virus. So do you see the sort of anti-quarantine partisanship emerging in Germany like we have here in the United States? I know everyone's newsfeed has been flooded with images of protesters coming out and saying that they want the country to reopen now. Are those sorts of people also in Germany? Are those protests happening in Germany as well? Yeah, there's some of that happening, um, but it's it's really been pretty recent, um, and uh, uh, it's not been super widespread. Um, I mean, not that it's particularly widespread here. You know, I think that you know the coverage is of course very uh, ubiquitous, but that doesn't actually necessarily reflect the size of those protests um, uh, and the spread of those protests. So there's been some of that going on here, but it's not the case that that has necessarily been captured by one particular political party, right? So for example, um, you know, when we're again thinking about the two main contenders at this point for Merkel succession, they're both of the same party. They're both prime ministers of their respective states. And one of them is, you know, uh, essentially favoring a much quicker opening than uh, the other one. And the other one actually is, is one of the main uh, voices in Germany uh, pushing back against uh, and cautioning against, uh, uh, you know, uh, easing restrictions um, uh, which, too quickly. So there isn't, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, which parties were you referencing there? 
So this is the, this, these are both members of the CDU, right? I mean, okay, one of them is technically a member of the CSU, the Bavarian offshoot of the Christian Democratic Union, but, you know, it's the same party. And so the, um, for all, in, for our purposes here. And so, uh, you know, my point is that there isn't party, you know, competition between parties over the um, uh, easing of restrictions, but it is actually primarily within the party uh, uh, that we're um, observing that. Um, there isn't any one party that is pushing particularly hard for an easing of restrictions. You know, the liberal Democrats, the free Democrats, uh, uh, kind of centrist, uh, you know, economically more libertarian um, party is uh, pushing a little bit more and they, you know, talk about the impact of these restrictions on um, civil liberties, personal freedoms, and so on and so forth. But um, uh, there's really nobody amongst the mainstream politicians who is pushing for, uh, you know, kind of, a, you know, we're just going to open things up without any kinds of restrictions in place. Can you speak at all to maybe the advantages or disadvantages of the federal structure of Germany, especially in comparison to uh, the United States, where, you know, it seems like here in the United States, states are being left out on their own to combat this, while the federal government is taking more of a hands-off approach. What has the response been in Germany, especially because of the just uh, inherent difference in state structure? Yeah, um, it's actually really interesting because uh, one of the big cleavages you, I, I briefly mentioned contestation. So now you're coming to the point right away. Um, uh, actually, one of the kind of dividing lines uh, in Germany over the crisis has been um, between different states, um, some of which have been pushing for quicker opening than others. Um, and that's interestingly independent of the partisan colors of those state governments, right? Um, and so federalism really plays an important role in the German response. Um, now, um, so one idea or perhaps ideal um, about federalism is that it provides a kind of laboratory for democracy, right? A kind of productive rivalry between the federal government and the states, but also between the states themselves that allows for best practices and policy responses to emerge. Um, and we have seen some of that in Germany, I think. For example, um, in the early stages of the pandemic, when um, you know, there's a decentralized diagnostic system that basically meant that no German equivalent of the CDC was making decisions that might have hampered the successful rolling out of testing. Um, instead, Germany's you know, kind of rough equivalent of the CDC, a place, you know, it's an institution called the uh, Robert Koch Institute, um, is making recommendations and is offering guidance and coordination, but it's not actually prescribing responses. Um, and we also saw some states imposing requirements for, wear for um, wearing masks first, um, and then for the rest of the country to eventually follow suit. So some of that, um, you know, this, this uh, you know, productive rivalry uh, uh, seems to be happening, but then there's also downsides to federalism, and there were also on display early on. Right? Uh, early on, I, you know, I mentioned that uh, Germany's response seemed incoherent at first, um, and that's in part because different states, you know, were essentially scrambling um, to put the right measures in place to address the pandemic. And so you had this kind of incoherent patchwork that emerged of different rules, which then confused the public, it confused authorities, 
It was only after a little while that the states actually then agreed to ask the federal legislature to give the federal executive, so the federal government, broad powers in managing the um, epidemic. And um, so there were a bunch of decisions that were made yesterday about easing restrictions, which we'll also talk about at some point, I'm sure. Um, and so, you know, some of that centralization was actually reversed in those decisions, and the states were largely put back in charge of opening things up. Um, and uh, that was in part a response to some states uh, having already moved ahead, right? So essentially forcing the hand of the federal government. Um, so now Germany seems to be walking a kind of fine line between providing opportunities for states to forge their own path as appropriate given regional circumstances and different infection rates, for example, while also having uh, states continue to adhere to a kind of general national line. Uh, we'll see how that pans out. Um, you know, in order for federalism to work in times of crisis, you need both strong federal leadership to coordinate and to provide coherence, but you also um, need, uh, you know, to allow states to do things themselves that they can do. And that's, you know, one thing that I think is really important to emphasize here is that there are certain things that states are in a really good position to do. And then there are other things that they're really not in a position to do. Um, and that's where the federal government has to uh, step in. And so it's a little bit counterintuitive, perhaps, that, you know, a successful federal response to a crisis like the one that Germany's experiencing and that also we're experiencing uh, requires both strong states and also strong um, federal uh, leadership. So in Germany, it's really er too early to tell how all of this will work out. But the past few months suggest that Germany is on a more solid path, perhaps, than we are uh, over here. So what would you say is Germany's exit strategy? And what are the challenges as it is opening up? What might we be able to glean from Germany's opening up that might help the U.S.? in our effort to combat the virus and open up again? Yeah, um, so actually, I think in order to really answer your question here, I have to backtrack a little, little bit um, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, to testing, um, because testing, testing is really an important component of this. And to some you know, degree, it really is a precondition for some of the things that Germany is doing now. So let me talk a little bit about um, uh, 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 Germany uh, and its testing regime, which of course has been getting a lot of positive news coverage also um, over here. Um, so it was initially actually a German university medical center that developed the test that was recommended by the World Health Organization. Um, and those tests were then rolled out throughout Germany in January. Um, by the time Germany had its first um, recorded case of COVID-19 in February, laboratories across the country had already built up a stock of test kits, not you know, anywhere near what was ultimately needed, but there were actually tests around. Um, about 120,000 people a week were being tested um, starting in late February. And then the last week of April, this is again a number I looked up uh, yesterday, uh, almost 350,000 tests were conducted. Um, and Germany's capacity is uh, uh, estimated to stand at about uh, 140,000 tests per day. And there's efforts at further in, 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 um, improving that. Um, now, as a result of this testing regime, Germany is able to catch more people with few or no symptoms to provide um, life-saving treatment in a more timely manner um, and to be, you know, and it's better able to isolate positive cases, which then has allowed the authorities to slow the spread of the virus. Uh, and medical staff is also tested regularly. And it was very clear from the beginning that tests would be free. So nobody was discouraged from being tested for uh, financial reasons. So um, 
there are a number of important positive outcomes of this testing, aside from preventing the spread of the virus. Uh, you know, one of them is, again, that infect infections can be traced better, which then actually means that easing restrictions and opening things up can be done with more confidence and without unnecessarily putting lives at risk. And the second thing is that we have data, right, which means that we can actually learn more about the virus. And the more we know, the better we are able to track and treat the virus. So, um, for example, without quality data on the number of infections, recoveries, and deaths, we're unable to reliably gauge risks for different age or risk groups. Um, that could result in more deaths, but it also prevents us from easing restrictions at an earlier stage, right? The more we know about the virus, and I think this is something that's really important um, to emphasize, the earlier we can return to something resembling our normal lives, right? And so data and information, as I see it, are among the strongest weapons we have against this virus, uh, which sadly isn't appreciated quite as broadly um, here um, in the US. The other two things that I might mention that are really interesting, I think, is that um, one is that there are several studies underway in Germany that randomly test people for the virus. Uh, so rather than, you know, testing people who um, are showing symptoms or who are showing mild symptoms or something like that, there's actually additional testing on that's randomly done um, in order to basically establish how many people are being infected, um, you know, to gain insights into infection rates, how deadly the virus is, whether immunity is developing, um, and which social and economic restrictions have slowed the virus uh, most effectively. Um, and so, you know, the testing is very targeted in some sense towards people who are, you know, healthcare workers or displaying symptoms, but then you also have this broader effort at uh, data generation, which I think is really interesting. Um, but you were, you know, we, this was kind of the little, uh, uh, you know, uh, basic information um, to add um, or to actually set up the uh, question that you asked about um, Germany opening up. Um, and uh, our, the timing of our conversation is actually very, uh, uh, it works out very well because um, it was only yesterday that, that Germany announced uh, significant easings. Um, of the uh, restrictions. And this was based on an agreement that was reached between the federal government and the states. Um, and just to give you a little overview of what's happening, schools are opening up gradually, um, first for only some grades um, and involving social distancing measures and strict hygiene and rules and so on and so forth. And one thing that's kind of interesting is that students uh, most in need of in-person instructions are actually supposed to be return to, to, to return first. Um, so for example, because they don't have access to computers. Um, now this raises concerns about you know, social stigma attached to early returns to school. Um, so there's some balancing here, um, a kind of balancing act going on. And uh, the details are also to be worked out in each state. So this is an example of the states being kind of put back in charge of um, uh, responses. Um, it's also now permitted to have social gatherings of more than one with more than one person. So that was the rule, right? That only two people could basically hang out. Um, they are now limited to members of at most two households and again, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, with uh, social distancing rules uh, in place. Uh, businesses are allowed to open, but they're supposed to limit their customers um, essentially based on their square footage. So they are only allowed to let in a certain number of people so that they can stay uh, distant from each other. Um, 
uh, masks are still mandatory um, in public. Um, there's not supposed to be any big crowds. Um, uh, so which then, for example, means that the German soccer league, which is starting up again on May 16th, um, is going to be playing um, without any spectators. Um, and then one thing that's important to emphasize is that there's a kind of emergency break that was built into this agreement, uh, whereby counties or large cities um, have to re-tighten restrictions um, if there are more than 50 new infections per 100,000 people um, over a seven-day uh, uh, period. So um, those are the that's kind of the opening uh, that was agreed upon uh, yesterday, but again with that kind of emergency break uh, built in. Maybe one more thing before we move on to some of the party politics. It seems like there's a really major difference in the way that Germany and the United States handle our welfare states with respect to like income guarantees and healthcare. Can you speak at all to how Germany's approach to the welfare state is helping it out in this particular situation? Yeah, um, I, I think that's actually really um, interesting, you know, uh, I mean, maybe, again, I looked up some numbers because I think that, uh, you know, if you're talking about a place that's not the U.S., then giving a little bit of context can be pretty helpful. So, um, you know, the economic impact of the pandemic is really devastating in Europe, as it is here. Um, the economy of the European Union uh, is expected to shrink by 7.4 percent this year, uh, which is, you know, worse than during the Great Recession when the economy shrank by 4.5 percent. Um, the impact will be particularly bad in southern Europe, where economies are expected to shrink by more than 9%. Uh, and unemployment in Greece, for example, which you know still is far from having recovered from the euro crisis, um, is expected to reach um, uh, about 20%. Now, Germany will be relatively better off, but its economy is still expected to shrink by 65 to 7%. Um, uh, which of course is huge. Uh, and unemployment will go up, but not nearly as drastically as in other places, perhaps to about 6% or so. And this is uh, you know, where uh, we're, we're now getting to the question that you're asking here, because one of the big reasons um, for this you know, relatively low number is that uh, Germany has expanded its uh, short-term work program, which uh, basically um, allows employees to scale back their hours. Um, the government pays them up to two-thirds of their normal salary, while employers pay little or nothing. And then once the employer is back in a position to pay full wages, things return to normal with no layoffs. Um, and then, you know, the economy on the whole is, you know, the hope is will be then better equipped to also bounce back because companies do not actually lose the expertise of their workers and they, they can essentially go back to full capacity more quickly once the recovery starts. Um, and you know the exact number of how many people are going to be taking advantage of this is not yet known, but um, it's expected that it might be up to 10 million people. So really a huge part of the German um, uh, workforce. Now, that's of course really different from what happens in our, you know, higher and fire type of labor market here in the U.S., right, where tens of millions of people are actually losing their jobs um, in the crisis, and then those whose livelihood is directly put at risk um, by the pandemic are also at a further disadvantage because, you know, there isn't really a sufficient safety net. Um, 
um, in, in our country here to fall back on. Um, so people not only lose their jobs, but then many also lose their, you know, employer provided health insurance, you know, during a pandemic, no less, and uh, other social benefits that are tied to holding a job, which really is most of them at this point. Um, and so one thing that's, you know, becoming apparent is that a social safety net that's tied almost entirely to incentives to work um, is deeply problematic when a crisis hits that prevents people from working whether they like it or not, right? This is not a matter of people needing to be incentivized to work, right? Uh, uh, people would like to work if they could. Um, and so, you know, instead of discussing how quickly we should be opening up the economy to let people back to work, we could, of course, discuss measures that would not present them with this terrible choice between protecting their their health and the health of their loved ones and protecting their economic livelihood, right? We could pass relief packages that include temporary income continuation measures, for example, right? The choice is distinctly not between opening up and letting people die for the economy or sheltering in place, right? You know, saving lives and let, you know, but letting the economy go under, right? That's, that's not really the choice. Um, that's how it's presented to us, right? That it is between, you know, we could either open up and, you know, sadly, then people, some people might die, or we could shelter in place, save lives, uh, but then the economy will go under, right? Um, but um, that kind of uh, presentation really disregards a lot of other viable options that are out there. And, you know, there's no question that these options are expensive, um, but, you know, so are the stimulus packages that have already been passed, and so is a major economic contraction and the uncertainty that is associated with having multiple waves of infection hit us over time. And so, you know, a temporary wage subsidy program is really only politically infeasible at this point because one of our political parties makes it politically um, infeasible. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think would be much more productive uh, uh, discussion to have is not, you know, should we open up or should we save lives, but um, can we open up in, you know, careful, um, uh, you know, data-driven ways, can we uh, actually provide people with a safety net to fall back on so that they don't face that terrible choice between either protecting their, uh, you know, economic livelihood or protecting their lives and the lives of their loved ones. Um, and I do think that there's actually a lot of things that we could be doing. And, you know, of course, there's also, you know, the reality that when you already have an established um, social welfare benefit system in place like you do in Germany that is not just based on incentives to work, um, then that's a kind of easier starting point in the first place. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we couldn't have those conversations here. There's also the challenge now of executive emergency powers given not just in the United States, but especially in Germany, given Germany's history. Uh, can you speak at all to the history of emergency powers in Germany and what that's looking like right now, and maybe what that might mean for uh, concerns of civil liberties and privacy. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. The, um, you know, the emergency powers are really sensitive, right? Um, because it invokes memories of the Weimar Republic in Germany. Um, so Germany's first democratic state that came into existence um, after the end of the second, uh, uh, sorry, World War One, and then ended with the rise of Hitler's um, to power. Um, the Weimar Constitution was among the, you know, most democratic and progressive of its time, 
but um, its constitutional order also suffered from a number of weaknesses that are seen as having facilitated um, Hitler's rise to power. And among them um, was the emergency clause in Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which allowed the executive to override the legislature with emergency ordinances. Um, and when Weimar's very fragmented party system inhibited stable legislative majority, um, that article was increase, increasingly used um, to uh, basically overcome legislative uh, blockades. Uh, and in the late 1920s, it was really in almost near permanent use, uh, which is regarded as one of the important factors that destroyed public confidence in the Weimar system and then contributed to the national socialists coming to power. And so when West Germany enacted its constitution in 1949, it deliberately excluded these emergency, uh, any, any such emergency powers. They were eventually added um, in the 1960s. Um, and um, there's a couple of clauses that allow the federal or state governments in the case of a public threat, a natural disaster, or a threat to the existence of the democratic constitutional order to call in the federal police or the armed forces um, and you know, even for the federal government to assume control over state government. But uh, the question now is whether the current situation you know, actually meets those criteria, right? Does it constitute a natural disaster? Uh, there are some scholars who have said that it's a kind of slow moving natural disaster. And so these emergency powers could actually be used. Um, but there's also the question of whether or not the measures that are provided for like calling in the federal police or the armed forces are actually all that useful um, in, a, in a crisis like the one that we have right now. Um, but more broadly, it's a very politically sensitive question, right, that arises about the circumstances under which the federal government can intervene at the expense of state rights and at the expense of legislative authority and oversight. Um, and those are very tricky and very politically sensitive questions in most cases, but in Germany, they take on this very special meaning because of uh, Germany's uh, past. Um, the emergency regimes that are generated by the pandemic also relate to a host of fundamental right and freedom issues, right, ranging from questions of freedom of speech when, you know, for example, demonstrators may be prevented from convening and rallying because of social distancing rules. Um, but also, you know, there's these tensions between public health and data privacy concerns. And one important example here is a project that was favored by uh, the health minister Jens Spahn for a cell phone tracking app to monitor the uh, spread of the infections. So all of that is always kind of closely intermingled with uh, you know, the shadow of the past in Germany. Maybe we can hone in on the European Union. What kind of role and challenges is the European Union dealing with right now? I mean, the thing that I would say about the EU is that it's really not been a major player, right, when it comes to this pandemic. And that's in part because as an organization is really not very well equipped to deal with this kind of crisis. And it really isn't actually designed or expected, right, to deal with this kind of crisis. It's a pretty small organization in terms of money and manpower, despite what people think. Um, and it really doesn't have the ability to act like a federal government of sort, right? Uh, the EU executive under uh, Ursula von der Leyen was recently asked by the 27 member state leaders to draft a recovery plan for Europe, but any such plan and its implementation would ultimately be up to the member states um, anyway. I mean, what we have seen thus far is that the crisis has revealed that earlier divisions within the EU, especially between 
north and south, but also between west, uh, west and east, uh, remi remain uh, uh, quite salient. So the question of eurobonds, for example, so basically collective European debt is back on the table and uh, it is embraced by the usual Southern European and rejected by the usual Northern European suspects um, and you know countries that have been experienced democratic backsliding like Hungary or Poland are trying to take advantage of the crisis to move further down that road towards uh, competitive um, authoritarianism. Um, and, um, you know, one thing that the crisis has also once again revealed is, you know, a general lack of solidarity between the member states um, that, you know, there is a reluctance for one member state to kind of step up and do what is necessary to really help pull another one out of uh, deep trouble. Um, and here it's actually interesting, right, because, you know, we've talked about Angela Merkel being a really effective national leader. Um, but uh, she seen, you know, she really has failed to offer effective leadership at the EU level, much like she failed to do so during the Euro crisis. Um, so we again have a situation where Europe's south uh, is particularly hard hit by the crisis, um, and the northern member states are mostly worried about, you know, the political economic costs of collectivizing public debt. Uh, the single currency is you know, likely to be left teetering on the brink of collapse again, um, since the structural design flaws of the euro have not actually been sufficiently addressed um, during and in the aftermath of the euro crisis, which, you know, now started 10 years ago. So the problem was basically kicked down the road and that's where Europe now finds itself again, right? We have now reached the end of the road to which we kicked the can. Um, so one thing I might do here is actually make a pitch for inviting Mark Koplovich uh, to be your next guest on the podcast because he can talk about those very consequential issues in, in okay. much detail. So that would be really interesting and uh, informative. Yeah, we can kind of wrap it up now with, um, Professor, if you have any advice or thoughts on what students might do to be proactive in terms of positive civic activism during the weeks and months ahead? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm afraid I don't have a cure-all um, advice for the very many challenges that students and graduating seniors in particular will be facing in the months to come. I really wish I did. Um, but I do think that there are some things that we can do to feel empowered and um, feel like you can make a difference right now. Um, and, uh, you know, they range from very simple and easy things like uh, making sure that your household fills out the census form so that, you know, everyone is counted and communities receive the resources that they need, uh, which we can see nowadays is really more important uh, than ever. Um, and you mentioned civic engagement, and I totally agree with that, right? Being civically engaged, uh, reinforcing democratic values and democratic vitality at the local level, I think is exactly the kind of thing that we can do um, to, you know, maybe feel like we're making something out of this crisis, right? Civ civic engagement um, may help, um, and, uh, you know, one of the, or actually what I should say is that one of the things that civic engagement can help with is also to kind of counteract the negative narratives that this pandemic um, is bringing out, right? Um, and so, you know, civil society in general can be a real bastion against 
regressive political and social forces. And so I think that there's much that we can do. Um, one thing you could do, for example, is volunteer for a campaign, right? We're in the middle of uh, election season. Um, and I realize that not everyone is in a position to do so, for example, for financial reasons. But those of us who can, I would say, well, do that, right? Um, and then finally, you know, make sure that you vote. Um, elections are ultimately how you affect the world around you. Um, and so if you're happy with how things are going right now, you have an opportunity very soon to try to reelect local leaders, congresspeople, senators, and the president. And if you're unhappy, then you have the opportunity to vote for change. So go out and vote. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We sure. appreciate it so much and we hope we can check in with you soon and maybe meet again in person in the fall as this global situation develops. Yeah, let's hope so. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.